1: Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarin from Zuma Radio, AM 740.
2: Ah, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang out, C- hang your uh, cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. And you'll need it up here. It's uh, unseasonably cool, even though we are well into spring. You wouldn't know it up here in uh, Toronto, the good. Welcome. You are among friends. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and uh, I am your humble little chat show host, Uh, artist, author, filmmaker, magician. Uh, Paul Davids is standing by with a remarkable tale involving a post-mortem contact with the great, the eccentric Forest J Ackerman. It's all detailed in his book An Atheist in Heaven: The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. Paul is actually the co-author along with uh, Gary E Schwartz and uh, John Alliston. Uh, John Allison rather. And we'll get to that in mere moments. Ian Robertson is here on the other side of the glass twisting the dials and the knobs. Albert Vinzel is uh, running our HOA, the Hangout on Air. And if you want to watch the live stream of this radio program, and it's kind of cool, uh, you can watch it on YouTube. You just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, T. Go to the top of the feed, and you'll find the tweet with the HOA link. You just click on it, and you are in the inner sanctum. You can watch the radio program. Uh, please visit the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Just, you know, keep checking back. There's always interesting things coming along. And my dear friends Patrick and Kadina at Conspiracy Culture Bookstore are presenting a special event Saturday, May the 21st. Uh, it's called Missing 411 Canada with author-researcher David Polides, who is a frequent uh, guest on Coast to Coast. And I'll be hosting... I hope to see you there. Again, just visit the live events page, strangeplanet.ca. Click on that, and uh, that's all the information and and, uh, ticket uh, information and so forth. Uh, While you're there at strangeplanet.ca, go to the radio page for The Conspiracy Show the radio program you're listening to right now. And up the top is the slide carousel. And Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits and news stories about the paranormal conspiracies and the just plain weird. Uh, There is an update. Have you been following this uh, mysterious hum story? Um, There have been occurrences of it all over the world, really. In fact, there's a gentleman in uh, British Columbia who's uh, dedicated a website to this. He's tracking it. Uh, But this particular story, which comes from the Globe and Mail, is focusing on on Windsor, Ontario, just south of here, the industrial town of Windsor. And the uh, the residents uh, there, uh, this has been going on for years. It's kind of off and on, this mysterious hum. Nobody knows what the source of it is. Uh, it hangs around for a while and then it disappears. But residents report loss of sleep and nausea. And, um, well, half a decade after the the hum first started, uh, it seems to be growing louder than ever. And for many residents, it's not merely uh, some science fiction plot. They call it a civic nuisance that has pushed them to their wits end and, and highlighted anxieties over sovereignty and the fate of industry in, in this hard-hit border community. Uh, and um, after years of really nothing much being done about it, they they hope the liberal government, the newly minted liberal government here, will save their eardrums and their peace of mind. The Windsor Hum, uh, as it's known, has been compared to an idling diesel truck, a constant earthquake, an orchestra tuning up, and a car subwoofer playing Barry White. Uh, Anyway, you can read the whole story from the Globe and Mail, and that's just one of the stories we've posted in the slide carousel at the top of the radio page, all you need to do is go to strangeplanet.ca and then uh, click on the radio page. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, this is a rare event. We're going to carry this one for the full two hours. We do not do this ordinarily, but this, um, well, you'll find out why in just a moment. If you're a sci-fi fan or a, or a horror film fan of a certain age, you will remember... Monsters of Filmland magazine, uh, which began publishing in the late 1950s, 1958, I think. It was published by James Warren, and the editor was a very eccentric gentleman by the name of Forrest J. Ackerman. Uh, He was also a science fiction writer of himself. He was a literary agent and uh, quite a character who inspired generations of Hollywood filmmakers who, again, were avid fans of Monsters magazine. And Ackerman was also an avowed atheist. And he promised that, you know, if he was wrong about, you know, an afterlife, that he would reach out to a special somebody, try to communicate, almost like uh, Houdini and his promise to his, his, uh, his wife. Uh, and then Ackerman died just before midnight on Thursday, December the 4th, 2008. And a few months later... In 2009, it all began. A series of apparent post-mortem communications between the late Forrest J. Ackerman and his good friend, Paul Davids. And this series of communications and synchronicities, it's, it's endless. It's been described as the most comprehensive and compelling case of after-death communication, a case that offers many types of testable challenges for labs at Indiana University, the College of New Jersey, and the University of Arizona. Their studies, reports, and findings include extensive chemical analysis and forensic document examination. And all of this evidence and the whole story and what a wild ride it is, and it's not over yet, it's all included in the book An Atheist in Heaven, the Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. Paul Davids is one of the co-authors. He's an author, artist, director. He's produced films that include Marilyn Monroe Declassified. That should be out uh, very shortly. Uh, NBC Universal's Jesus in India. The Sci-Fi Boys and Showtime's Roswell. He co-authored 6 books of the Star Wars saga with his wife Hollis Davids for Lucasfilm. He's a Princeton psychology graduate. His uncanny experiences of phenomena related to Mr. Ackerman are the subject of the film The Life After Death Project, which is aired here on Vision TV. An Atheist in Heaven is about his extraordinary case of this extraordinary case of afterlife communication and Mr. Davids has signed a sworn affidavit certifying that it is all true. Paul Davids, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend?
1: Thank you, Richard. It's great to be on and uh, to have a little taste of Toronto <clears throat> from here in Los Angeles. Uh,
2: I, first of all, kind of on a personal note, i got to tell you, could, because you and I, we met for breakfast in, in, uh, in Venice Beach uh, oh, a month and a half, two months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, you performed, because you're, a, you're quite the magician... Mm-hmm. and uh, you performed a, um, a quite a remarkable little magic trick and i recorded it on my, my iphone and my every, <laughs> practically isn't a day that goes by that my twin boys uh, ask to see that video and i was <laughs> we, we were looking at it again tonight my, my word i mean it's one thing to do some uh, a, a trick you know up on a stage and people are kind of distant but i was like what maybe a half a foot from you <laughs> wow! It, it's just—it's—it all involves uh, you know a dollar bill and turning it into a million dollar bill and then back into a. Do- You're good. You are
1: good. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I—I've <clears throat> been uh, a member of the Magic Castle in Hollywood now for oh, goes back to uh, when I was working on the Transformers show in the mid 1980s, and uh, so we're talking over 30 years of being a member of the uh, Professional Magicians Academy uh, in Hollywood and attending so many shows and seeing so many of the great magicians and learning so much about the techniques and enjoying it so much really as a hobby because I've, you know, I've never worked as a professional magician, but I certainly have developed a repertoire and I, I, I like to be the life of a party (laughs) with the magic when, you know, when the occasion arises and, uh, all the more so uh, the reason that I had to sign a sworn affidavit about this case and uh, really uh, work to make my, uh, my co-author, Gary Schwartz, who is um, a university professor, Arizona, uh, Tucson. Uh, and, and he has a Ph.D. from Harvard. He's taught at Yale psychology and many related fields. And he has researched life after death, evidence for over 15 years, the University of Arizona Tucson. He has a, um, <clears throat> an organization called, um, uh, well, it's the Organization for uh, Advances in Consciousness and Health. So he has uh, investigated mediums or people who think they are mediums. He has <clears throat> worked with um, technological equipment, very, very sensitive Uh, instruments to try to detect the presence of spirit. He's worked on these, you know, scientists would call this very fringe areas. And from the beginning, when I first uh, was introduced to him, he said, uh, Paul, you know, I'm interested in your story. I'd like to see what science can bring to it to um, see what we can corroborate. And he said, I, I want to tell you, you know, if this is some kind of a magician's hoax or you're having a fast one pulling my leg, uh, he said, I, I want to tell you, I'm not just going to expose you, Paul Davids. I'm going to kill you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, even though, I mean, let's, Dr. Schwartz, he does dabble in this arena, this space, I mean, yeah. at, at his lab, he, the director of the lab at, in the University of Arizona. But it's, so for him, I mean, uh, it's one thing. Uh, and, but he's certainly a respected scholar. But then you have a guy like your other co author, Dr. John Allison, who wrote yeah. two chapters from the University of Delaware. He's a chemist.
1: Well, he's a college of New Jersey. Oh, by okay. the way, I wanted to correct one other mistake. Ah. The magazine is not Monsters of Filmland, but it's Famous Monsters. Ah,
2: of famous Film Monster of Filmland. So we okay. always
1: call it FM or FMOF, and it has been around since 1958, as you reported. But yes, also there's John Allison, the chemist, <clears throat> Jay Siegel. Uh, extraordinary chemist who was head of the uh, Department of Chemistry at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, <clears throat> all of these people invested their time uh, their energy their reputations because usually scientists don 't want to go near this stuff this well, that was my year.
2: yeah, that was my point i mean it's, as i said it 's one thing for Sh- Gary Schwartz because he has written in, you know uh, about this and he has studied this, but for Allison Dr. John Allison. Uh, to yep. come on board and and write two chapters. I mean, imagine the courage it would take someone like that. Because uh, I mean, this let's face it, this is forbidden territory for well.
1: And, and and let me make the point. He's not writing these chapters to say he's figured this stuff out and has normal explanations for all of the phenomena that were was brought to him to study. It's quite the opposite. <clears throat> After three years of study, he's going on record as saying. This is a real, true, genuine mystery to science, that he's brought all the tools of all of his chemical training to this, that he studied it for three years. He's assigned it as a class project year after year, you know, putting 20, 30 students to work, with the mystery of how uh, we're talking about an ink obliteration. The first phenomenon had to do with ink on a document.
2: We'll we'll get to that in a moment, Paul. We're coming up on a break, but it's all documented in this remarkable book, An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. Paul Davids, author, filmmaker, extraordinary magician, is with us, and we will talk about this amazing case of after-death communication between the great Forrest J. Ackerman and my guest, Paul
0: Davids, over the next two hours. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740.
2: Author of Filmmaker Paul Davids is with us. The book is An Atheist in Heaven, the Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. And this uh, case involves uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland. And just to give you a sense of his influence, uh, back in in 2000, uh, Stephen King uh, wrote a nonfiction book called On Writing. And he describes his history with Ackerman's work. He calls Famous Monsters of Filmland a life-changing publication, and and he added, ask anyone who's been associated with the fantasy, horror, science fiction genre in the last 30 years about this magazine, and you'll get a laugh, a flash of the eyes, and a stream of bright memories. I practically guarantee it. Uh, So uh, that's Forrest J. Ackerman. Now, Paul, in your documentary, Sci-Fi Boys, which came out about 10 years ago, you, you focus heavily on famous monsters and Mr. Ackerman. And you interviewed him but when where does your history begin uh, with with Forrest J Ackerman how did you become such good friends
1: well it started when I was uh, when I was a wee lad um, and famous monsters came out and I would covet every issue and they would be confiscated from me by the teachers and even my parents didn't quite approve because they didn't really understand what a wealth of cinematic education this magazine was filled with humor from the editor who had such a marvelous and unique sense of humor and showed the behind the scenes of special effects in science fiction and horror films way before you could get this information anywhere else so when i was a kid people asked my friends what they wanted to be and it was always you know doctor lawyer professor work for the government run for political office because I grew up near Washington, D.C. And uh, I, I said, I want to be a special effects cinematographer. <clears throat> no one knew what that was, but it was because of Famous Monsters magazine. <clears throat> I met Fari when I was about 13. He came to Washington, D.C. for a world science fiction convention. And he was uh, so outgoing and he had made this cross-country trip, meeting fans along the way, uh, and I was, of course, a, a big fan of the magazine. Had always wanted to m- meet him, and he invited me to show some little amateur eight-millimeter—I mean, very amateur—movies. You know, I was 13 years old, <clears throat> but I, I made my own versions of dinosaur films and dragon films and the mummy and Frankenstein and that sort of thing and eight-millimeter. This was before we had video. So there's no sound uh, on this. And these little reels, they're like three minutes long. And he invited me to uh, show these to a group of fans in the hotel that he was staying at. And he made a big deal about it. And he said he was going to print an article about this in Famous Monsters. And he did. And then, uh, I guess it must have been within about a year, I was one of the winners in Famous Monsters Amateur Movie Making Contest. And, uh, I, you know, to be a kid who's not even in high school yet and get a letter from Hollywood from Forrest J. Ackerman addressed to master movie maker Paul David, well, I can assure you I was not a master movie maker then. But, you know, it was so wonderful and flattering. <clears throat> and to be in the pages of his magazine made me feel like maybe I could be a movie producer. So I I, uh, I went to Princeton I was pre-med, uh, I, I took all the science uh, courses uh, preparing for pre-med, and then around the time the Beatles' Yellow Submarine* movie came out, because I'd always been fascinated by animation, I decided no, no, no medicine for me, I was going to head for Hollywood. I got accepted at the American Film Institute as a, one of the first fellows at their Center for Advanced Film Studies, and once there in Los Angeles, <clears throat> I was at Fari's doorstep, He lived in, um, he called it the Mansion, And he he moved from one Mansion to another uh, around the time that I was, uh, in that first decade or so I was in Los Angeles. Uh, The biggest one was 18 rooms in the Los Feliz area near Griffith Park, absolutely filled with props, memorabilia, movie posters, lobby cards, science fiction books, Masks, the original monsters that were used to create the effects in the movies. The house was a museum. And author Ray Bradbury called it the Fort Knox of science fiction. So this began a bond between myself and Fari that w- went on for decades. And uh, when, when my wife and I were <clears throat> given a contract to write six uh, sequel Star Wars books for younger readers, um, we dedicated one of them to Fari. And when our first book was published, which was called The Fires of Pele, Mark Twain's legendary lost journal about the myths of Hawaii and Mark Twain, uh, Fari wrote a, uh, a foreword to it. He, he would call these things a fori word. Everyone <laughs> called them yes. fourie. Right. And he reduced that to four, the number four, E, because... To really understand him, you need to know he was into Esperanto, that universal language that idealists thought could help promote world peace if everybody spoke Esperanto. It was a created language, and it had a simplicity to it, so he telegraphed and punctuated things, like with a 4E for his name. And he was very much into puns and wordplay and word games and finding names within names and making jokes out of it. Um, so eventually, when he did pass away and his games started with me, um, the, the the word games and word manipulation um, that was his trademark was part of his communication with me that it surprised me so much that gets ahead of our story.
2: Right, I want to ask you before we get into you know uh, uh, to his, to his death. Yeah. Um, did you have conversations with Forey about you know he he's an avowed atheist. I mean yeah. and, and I don't know where you were in terms of your spiritual development at this point, but did you have lengthy discussions with him about metaphysics and and spirituality?
1: Yes, uh, and also about anything paranormal, including flying saucers, which he didn't believe in. And that was a problem for me after 1987 because I was a direct eyewitness to one with my two children in broad daylight. And I had to explain to him, these things are real. They're, they're not just fiction. It was very slow to accept any of these things. He was a writer about all of these things. His, his pages of the magazine are filled with flying saucers and ghosts, you know, and the undead and zombies and mummies. And, but to him, it was all fiction. You know, he philosophically, for him, there was no God. There's no life after this one. Um, when he did pass, uh, at his estate sale, I acquired many, many binders of his archives that included some of his writings that were never published, including missives that he would write. Uh, uh, like on the anniversary of his wife's death, he wrote a missive that he just sent to a number of friends, um, as though he were writing it to her and saying, you know, by now you realize there's no afterlife, and we were right. It's an oxymoron, of course. It's ridiculous, because he's writing to someone who, he's saying, you know, the brain died, the light bulb went out, there is no more consciousness, it's over, and yet um, he's, he's writing her to say, by now you can confirm <laughs> right. it for me. You right. know, it's funny. It's part of his, his, his humor. But... Um, From the time he was a boy, he rejected religion. And yet his grandparents were spiritualists. And they even had seances. And they had one seance that had a positive result for his grandfather, who as a result of a Ouija board was advised to take a job that he had been offered, he didn't feel he was ready for, to design a building in Los Angeles they called the Bradbury Building. No relation to Ray Bradbury. But the Bradbury building has been um, used to film movies like Blade Runner, for example. It was a futuristic building for its era, and it was a Ouija board response that gave the grandfather the courage, even though he wasn't a fully, um, <clears throat> what would you say, a fully um, uh, accredited architect. Yet, he was the uh, the young boy at the firm who was just making lots of, futuristic, very imaginative drawings that caught the imagination of the person that wanted to see the Bradbury building built. So Fari saved the Ouija board uh, message and framed it and would tell visitors to his house about it. So that was one example of where he would, you know, kind of hold it up in your face and he'd say, but, you know, but there are no spirits. You know, I, You know, I don't believe in any... Communication. He was a bundle of contradictions because he also wrote some short stories about angels in heaven. And one of his favorite stories was called Letter to an Angel. It was about a, a hunchback boy who was a fan of Lon Chaney, who was the hunchback of Notre Dame.
2: Sure. Lon and Chaney Sr. and was the Wolfman. the boy
1: dies young and he goes to heaven and sees Lon Chaney and he. And in the final sentence, uh, or final paragraph of the story, that's when you realize the boy was a hunchback and he's so happy that now he's a spirit and he doesn't have this deformity anymore. And he's with his idol, Juan Cheney. So, Fari played with these things in fiction, he was a man of many contradictions. So, when, he, um, when people would try to pin him down about, uh, what, if he, what if he's wrong? You know, 'Cause he died at age ninety two, so by the time he's eighty eight and eighty nine, we're talking to him about these things. <laughs> it's like, What if you're wrong? And and he not only said it to me that, you know, if I wake up to some great science fiction convention in the sky, he said, you know, I'll I'll give your regards to Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. and
3: hey, <laughs> okay,
1: so I'll be very, very busy there with my my departed wife Wendane. Um, He said, but when the party uh, dies down, he said, uh, if I can, uh, you know, maybe I'll drop you a line. And then he would turn to a very sort of stern voice and say a very serious voice, you know, but don't count on it. (laughs) It's not going to happen.
2: Paul Davids is with us, the author of An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, the co-author, rather, along with uh, Gary E. Schwartz, Ph.D., and John Alliston, uh, Allison, a Ph.D. Uh, let, let's uh, move ahead to, to March uh, 18th, 2009, and this is uh, about three months uh, after uh, fory passes away. And you're at your vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And this yes. brings us really to the crux of the matter, the, the famous inkblot obliteration.
1: Could, could I say, Richard... That before we go to March 18th, I think we should talk about the weekend that preceded it, or the, it was March 8th, um, the, uh, the tribute for Fari. All right, okay. Because yes. the timing of the context of when these contacts happened was crucial to understand the believability of it all. That, um, uh, that, that Jomo, who was the closest confidant. And pal and sort of caretaker for Fari the last 10 years of his life, wonderful Hawaiian fellow, um, organized this tribute a few months later. Fari had said, I don't want a funeral. I don't want a memorial. And Joe had said, well, what about a tribute, Fari? Would you accept if we have a tribute for you? And he said, well, okay to that. So that was at the Egyptian Theater where we had done the premiere for my movie, The Sci-Fi Boys, Which we may need to go back to that later, but that was, it it placed Fari's importance in the whole development of movie science fiction with help from Peter Jackson of The Lord of the Rings. Right, right. Uh, So we had had the premiere for that at the, The Egyptian, and we had the tribute for Fari at The Egyptian. And I don't know if there are a thousand seats in the theater, but every seat was filled. People came from all around the world to pay tribute to him. And there were many speakers. Many far more important than I, uh, they included Ray Bradbury and John Landis uh, and uh, um, Guillermo del Toro and Peter Jackson checked in from New Zealand. And I was invited to speak, too. I was a science fiction producer, and uh, I had uh, written the Star Wars books. And then I had made the film Roswell or Showtime, not science fiction, but a docudrama about the UFO incident. So I was a speaker, too. And there were two Canadians, Ian Paul Johnston of Toronto and Michael McDonald of Halifax. They had made a bio-documentary about Fari for Canadian TV, and they came to show their documentary that night. And the day of the um, the tribute... Well, during the day, they went to Fari's crypt, and Mike McDonald rapped on the the crypt. You know, knock, knock, knock. Hi, Fari. It's uh, Michael McDonald. You know, Ian and I have come all this way from Canada to show the movie about you tonight, and, uh, you know, we love you. We'll never forget you. And he said that he certainly didn't consider it disrespectful to rap on Fari's crypt because of the sense of humor Fari had. Fari would have smiled over it. Well, Fari obviously was smiling over it because they told us they told us that weekend that within an hour of doing that, they heard from Fari. They heard from him on their computers in the hostel they were staying in. and they told the story, and it was just quite incredible. We're
2: going to get to that story right after this break, Paul. And I remember this from the uh, Life After Death project uh, film that came out a few years ago that aired right here on Zoomer Media's Vision TV. It's quite remarkable, and we will get to that story. Paul Davids, co-author, An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence
0: for Life After Death. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740.
2: All right, batting down the hatches, Paul David stays with us, and he is the co-author of An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. He swore an, I swore an affidavit uh, that this entire story is absolutely true. Be, uh, by the way, before we get back to uh, uh, that weekend of the uh, the tribute to um, Foray Ackerman, when you swear a, swear a statement certifying the truth of this account, what does that mean legally?
1: Well, I'm trying to indicate that <clears throat> what, uh, my account, uh, what my account is should have the same weight as if it were testimony in court. In other words, um, uh, I've uh, told in this book all of the different things that have happened in terms of the strange phenomena since Farry passed away. Some of it that science has investigated, and others that had witnesses, and some where I was the only witness. And uh, I've, I've sworn this affidavit to state from the outset <clears throat> that my purpose in this is to tell the truth as I know it about everything that happened without exaggeration, without embellishment, my, my purpose in this is to have the truth of these events known. I'd like it known by scientists and uh, some of the skeptics, because it's a challenge to them and their point of view. Um, in the preface, Dr. Schwartz writes a warning, and the warning is that everything in this book is, is true. That the story is true. That he's vetted it. He's vetted me. Uh, he, he's worked with me. He's worked with uh, the evidence in the lab, and phenomena happened to him as well. Many of the phenomena also happened to Dr. John Allison, the chemist of College of New Jersey. So uh, it, it's like sort of I was a touchstone. Uh, And that as I would reach out to others for help in analyzing this, they would begin to see firsthand that things would start to happen in their life connected to Fari Ackerman, apparently connected to him, uh, that they could not explain. And it became a deeper and deeper challenge. One of the key points we've missed here so far is this. As you pointed out, there was a 2013 film I made, still available as a two-DVD set called uh, The Life After Death Project. That was my video documentation of the story as it unfolded and as much evidence as I could put into that film and, then, and the sequel that comes with it. But after that came out, and it did air in Canada on Zoomer TV, and I was invited to speak about it actually at Idea City by uh, Moses Snymer, Uh, who had me as a guest, Uh, things continued, and academics got in touch with me, and in touch with Gary Schwartz, who was part of the research, and said, you know, documentary film, very intriguing, uh, certainly introduces us to all of uh, this evidence, but you really need a book. If you want it taken seriously in the academic community, if you want scientists, chemists, psychologists, university people to take this case seriously give us a book that has all the evidence the scientific reports all the evidentiary photos that you have give us a glossary of all the events you know with an index that's what we've done it took three years of writing by uh, the two of us McGarry Gary and me then plus a couple of chapters by John Allison and a chapter um, a, a chapter by one other Gentleman named Jack Kelleher, who had some phenomena happen to him. So, this was the purpose. Do the full book, put the scientific reports in there, lay it all out on the table, and the sworn affidavit is to say, I haven't exaggerated. I want you to know my purpose in this is for science, it's for the benefit of mankind to know that there really is very, very strong reason to believe as uh, some spiritualists have told us for 100 years, that personality survives death, and that contact between the departed spirit and those of us who are still in the body is possible and does happen.
2: All right. Now, I, I, we want to go back to the uh, the weekend of the, the tribute uh, for Forey and um, two of the, the individuals in town uh, for that, uh, was it Michael McDonald and was it the writer Ian Johnston? Yes. They went to Forest Lawn to uh, to where Forey is interred, and they knocked on his crypt sort of as a sign of respect. And what happened?
1: Well, they returned to the hostel room that they were sharing, and they had their two computers side by side on a bureau. Uh, Ian's computer was asleep and not logged on to the Internet. And uh, Michael tried to um, post a blog. And um, a capture code came up. To they, they have these capture codes to make sure that you're not spamming, like Facebook. So it's, it'll be a word, or some numbers, letters maybe that have a, sort of a squiggle. You know, we all encounter these, right, sometimes uh, on the Internet. But the CAPTCHA code that came up was Fari Ackerman's last name. It was Ackerman, zero, zero, zero. And this absolutely blew him away. You know, for one thing, you know, he went rap, rap, rap on the crypt. And the other thing, here's his name with a capital A. And, no, you know, there was an actress at that time whose last name was Ackerman, A-K-E-R. But, no, this was spelled like Fari's name. And they'd just been, they'd just been to his resting place. So, uh, oh, baffled Lord. and, 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 and so much shocked, they, they said, you know... What? You know, is he really dead? And then that's when Ian's computer blurted out with a voice that said, "Oh my gosh, no way." And it was a childlike voice, and Ian had, as the, uh, the home screen of his computer, a photo of Fari as a child four-and-a-half-year-old child, and he hears his childlike voice, which they find out later is an animated emoticon. You can find on YouTube a little animated character says, oh, my gosh, no way, and it rolls over. But the computer wasn't logged on to YouTube. This wasn't in his hard drive, and Ian said, you know, my computer had no business talking to me because it was as if it replied to what they said at the time. Right, right. So you had the two guys, one who believes in ghosts, that's Mike McDonald. He says he's lived in a haunted house. And you have Ian Johnston, who doesn't believe in these things, who's a hardcore skeptic, who's confronted with this experience. They tell me about it that weekend of the tribute. And this is like the night before I get on a plane to go to Santa Fe to my vacation house.
2: And now it is on. All right, we will take a time out. This was a short segment. We'll come back and we'll uh, we'll get to that inkblot obliteration. An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, co-author Paul Davids, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go
0: away, as if. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
2: All right. I'm not sure why we're playing Christmas music. However, uh, we are back with uh, Paul Davids, author, filmmaker, and uh, he is the co-author of An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. This is a remarkable, detailed, comprehensive chronicle of after-death communications between... Uh, Mr. Davids, and his good friend, a sci-fi writer, literary agent, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, uh, Forrest J. Ackerman. Uh, Okay, so um, can we move things along? We'll get right to that obliteration.
1: Yes, yes. And and I I do want to add to your description of the book that uh, it is available in Canada uh, as um, an e-book at uh, Amazon. All right. That's there now. So um, here's what happened to me that set all of this in motion. Um, When I was at my uh, Santa Fe house, it was tax season, and I I had a uh, 24-page file uh, in my computer of business calls and meetings, and I needed to print it out to go through it to see if there were things that would remind me of business deductions. So I pressed the print command on the computer, and I knew it was going to take time, and, and I wanted to go out anyway, so i I went out uh, to a local Indian casino where I sometimes play a little blackjack, and I think I had dinner. I came back now, I was alone on this trip. My wife was not with me. Uh, it's a large house, but um, i'm in once I'm back, you know the doors are locked. no one is in that house but me. And I retrieved the document. so since it had been printed before I went out, you know as I was going out. Um, obviously the ink is dry, and I look it over, and uh, it all looked completely normal. So, so far we have absolutely no story, nothing to get excited about. I stapled it, I tossed it on the bed on the main floor, and uh, went into the bathroom for maybe five minutes, and I intended to sort of crawl into bed and go through this thing with a pencil and, and, and uh, figure out what related to tax items. When I came out of the bathroom, that was the moment of shock. It, was, it stands out in my mind as a moment in time, frozen in time. As I looked at that document, <clears throat> I could see immediately that on one line, words had been blacked out by uh, some kind of ink um, or, or, or paint. I didn't know what it was, but it was still moist, could see it was still moist. Now, nothing had been moist on the document when I went out of the room. And the reason it's so shocking is that as you look at it, you see that it's perfectly blocking out several words. Actually, it was four words, but two of them you couldn't even read at all. Two of them you could sort of see. The key thing is that you, you know immediately that these words were targeted for the blackout because it's so neatly done the blackout it's like you know coloring in the lines in a coloring book it it was intended so we're not talking about water dripping from a ceiling we're not talking about a leaky pen in the bed you know immediately it's deliberate But there's no one there but me and I didn't do it and I'm in shock because this is impossible this is where my life walks into the twilight zone, for real, for the first time. Because in the world that I've been brought up to believe in, this can't happen. You know, No one can do that from afar. You know, The National Security Agency may have satellites and all kinds of devices for spying on people and doing all kinds of things. But no, not, not to change four words in a document inside somebody's locked house. So right.
2: and the as you say the the four words are obliterated and the two words that that precede the the blocked out words yeah, is are only partially uh out. blotted so two out two
1: levels it. of opaqueness right. which becomes important for later in the story um but uh the first two words were spoke to and then I couldn't read the other uh, uh words I had to later go to the computer file to see what they were but the fear Richard the fear from somebody who was a skeptic like me you asked about my previous beliefs you know well you know I, I wasn't committed to any beliefs you know I'd, I'd read about reincarnation I had uh, been a segment producer for an F. Lee Bailey segment on lie detector with a psychic detective named Dorothy Allison from New Jersey uh, decades before this happened um, and uh, so my curiosity had been aroused by all those things. But no, it never happened to me. And uh, I, I had fear because, you know, when you see something that's like a black spot and you think of, you know, the black spot in pirate stories always means, you know, you're, you're the next one to right. die.
2: Impending a foreshadowing, yes. A
1: foreshadowing of, of death. And I, I wondered if, if, if I was being told that I was soon to die, which wasn't true, of course. It's been, what, eight years since this happened. But uh, it took me days to figure out what the message in this blot meant and why it would be from Fariak. From All
2: right, unravel that mystery for us
1: here. Okay. So uh, Joe Moe was Fari's closest caretaker. Right, you mentioned him, yes. Well, I didn't, I didn't see it right away that the name Joe Moe was contained in these words. The words were spoke to, and then the name was Joe... Amode. This was a guy I hardly even knew. I spoke to him once. He was a film distributor in Canada. I think I asked him if he was interested in distributing my film Jesus in India. Great film, but he wasn't interested. We had one conversation, never again. So the first question is why why does a spirit come to me from another world to tell me something about Joe Amade, you know, if if he's got trouble in his life, tell a relative, you know, why tell me? Right but uh uh it did occur to me that Fari was an editor, and he'd been in touch with Mike McDonald and Ian Johnson. I believed their story implicitly. You listened to them, you had to believe what they told you and uh so I wondered if I could find examples of um articles from from famous monsters that before they'd been published that had the editing notations in them to see had Fari done this before. And I happened to have a book about famous monsters that had something like that. But as I read it, I wasn't sure whether Fari had done the blackout in that or whether it was his publisher, James Warren, because I did find one that looked kind of like what had happened to me. So I figured, how am I going to find out whether it was Warren or Ackerman? I called up Joe Moe. And this is the this is the other key moment in all of this, that, that Joe wouldn't even let me talk at first. He said... You know, he arranged the tribute, and he said, Paul, wait, wait, wait. I've got to tell you what happened to me. He said, I had an apparition. Fari came to me uh, after the tribute. and He said, I, you know I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in this stuff. This thing was like super real. It was super reality. He said, it, I don't know, lucid dream? He said, I don't know. It was like moments before I woke up. I was, it was seeing myself in my room. And Fari walks into the room, and he has a smile on his face, and he says, have you seen any good Hollywood tributes lately? <laughs> and uh, Joe said, you know, did you like it? You know, and Fari said, uh, it was fair. And that was a joke between the two of them, because someone in Fari's guest book at the Acker Mansion, which he called his ghost book, once wrote, this is fair. And Fari got mad about that. He said, what would this guy say about the Taj Mahal? You know, (laughs) that it was fair? Right, right. So that was the meaning. And then uh, Fari said to him, the apparition said, and no, pal, he said, that was the ninth wonder of the world. And then Joe said, it was like instantly waking up, but he's seeing everything the same. He's seeing his room exactly as when Fari was there, but now there's no Fari there anymore. And and. Ninth wonder of the world reverberated for him because why not the eighth wonder of the world? You know, we all say there's seven natural wonders of the world. Right. But the eighth wonder for Fari was always King Kong. King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. So Fari never would have called his own tribute, you know. The eighth wonder of the world had to be the ninth. Right, right. So Joe told me all this, and he said, Paul, you know, it was just like Fari came and spoke to me. It was at that moment. And Joe said, I gasped. He said, it was like you put your hand on a stove, uh, because I realized that Joe Moe was contained within Joe Amodi, and what had been blacked out of my document was, spoke to Joe Amodi, spoke to Joe Moe. There was a message. bari right. spoke to Joe Moe. It wasn't a dream Joe. It wasn't some kind of unreal apparition. You, you had a crossover between the world's came to you.
2: And and, and just to jump ahead here, you you found uh, the same type of editing symbol that that, uh, precision obliteration that Forrest used in the magazine that he edited.
1: Yes, I, I researched it for the next couple of years. I found example after example. And one of the best I found actually in Toronto, Ian Johnston who had coincidentally walked into a bookstore and stumbled over a box of old documents filled with original documents from Forrest J. Ackerman. The guy was selling for 49 bucks. He had no idea of its value. And I pored over these documents at Ian's house, and I, I found one that had the blackout where Farry had crossed something out in two different levels, You know, just reminiscent of my document. And right. I found others... Perfect carbon copy for what happened to my document, and I also, in the book *An Atheist in Heaven*, I've annotated everything. I found about uh, twelve or fifteen examples from famous monsters where Fari would use a name within a name or a word within a word, you know, to make a point or make a joke. So the idea that he would tell me he spoke to Joe Mo by blacking out, you know, a name that's similar, Joe amodi was completely in character. So this is what boggles my mind, okay? So from the atheist, we're learning that life does go on, and he still exists. But from the atheist, we're also learning that he retains his personality. He retains his sense of humor. He's still able to make a joke and a pun just like he did when he was in the body. So, you know, it all, it sounds like science fiction... I couldn't have invented a story like this if I tried. The stuff keeps happening to me. It's been over 100 incidents. It's all in the book, and it's happened over this period now of uh, about seven years. And I never know when something is going to happen. I can never predict it. But when it happens, I'm just suddenly taken aback. Oh, my God. You know, the mask of Fari's face that was in my home office Nobody goes in there, and it's moved 10 feet across the room. You know, things that have happened are just mind-boggling.
2: All right, and um, we will leave some of those other stories for the next hour. We're going to continue this. Part two coming up for all those stations along the, uh, the network that uh, carry the next hour. You're in for a treat more Evidence from an atheist in heaven, the ultimate evidence for life after death. Paul David stays with us. The website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to the Conspiracy Radio Program. Follow me on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks
2: for inviting me into your home, your long haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome, one and all, to the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Sarrett. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio 50,000 watts of peace and love. Uh, coming at you from uh, the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. Of course, all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, Uh, the podcast at Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, TalkZone.com, and, of course, uh, the free apps, uh, free downloads, uh, the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both very cool must-haves. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes. It's great to have your company. Uh, We are going into part two of our conversation with author, filmmaker, Paul Davids, who is the co-author of a most remarkable document. It's called An Atheist in Heaven, the Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, uh, which details in incredible detail uh, the afterlife, or after death, rather, after death communication between uh, Paul Davids and his good friend, mentor, Uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a science fiction writer, a literary agent, and the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was an inspiration to uh, generations of filmmakers. Uh, And this all uh, began uh, a few months after Forrest Ackerman passed away in uh, December of 2008, Uh, Things began to unfold in March of 2009, shortly after, uh, I guess it was the weekend following a uh, a Hollywood tribute uh, to Mr. Ackerman, uh, which we talked about previously, and uh, then we talked about uh, March of uh, 2009 at Paul David's vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, what has been called the Ink Obliteration on a particular document that Paul found on his bed. And uh, we're going to pick it up from there and just kind of uh, summarize that once again before we move forward. Uh, But let me once again introduce Paul Davids. He's an author, artist, director. He's produced films that include Marilyn Monroe Declassified, NBC Universal's Jesus in India, and The Sci-Fi Boys, and Showtime's Roswell. He co-authored six books of the Star Wars saga with his wife, Hollis Davids, for Lucasfilm. He's a Princeton psychology graduate, and his uncanny experiences of phenomena related to Mr. Ackerman are the subject of the film The Life After Death Project, which uh, uh, I believe premiered across Canada on Vision TV here at Zoomer Media. An Atheist in Heaven is about this extraordinary case of afterlife communication and Mr. Davids has signed a sworn affidavit certifying that it is all uh, true. And we should also point out uh, that uh, Michael Shermer uh, from Skeptical Inquiry magazine uh, – and I've interviewed Michael Shermer. Let me tell you, he's a tough nut, <laughs> not my favorite person to interview. Uh, however, he has some actually some pretty uh, positive things to say. Uh, about this entire account, and um, we'll, we'll get uh, Paul David's to fill us in on that a little bit later. But let's uh, welcome Paul to the program once again. Paul, welcome back to the Conspiracy Show. Good to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Richard. All right, it's so- great to have the opportunity to to, to tell about this. And uh, you know, earlier when I, I mentioned that an atheist in heaven in Canada, you know, you can get the ebook at uh, Amazon. Of course, you can also order the get the hardback from from Amazon, and I guess so that that's shipped from the U.S. And, and go to Canada too. And some people, I guess, are listening from the U.S. This just was published in April after three years of writing to document all the things that we had put into the Life After Death project a documentary that you mentioned. Um, so it's all there, all the uh, the strange incidents that have happened. There's a glossary listing 140 events that have happened in, uh, well, the last uh, seven years. And uh, there's the reports of the scientists who studied the physical evidence because uh, when the first incident happened involving ink, I treated the document as uh, a potential scientific evidence and was soon to personally hand-deliver it to the head chemist at Indiana University.
2: That was Jay Spiegel.
1: Dr. Jay Siegel, yes. Siegel,
2: Jay Siegel. Okay, just quickly, for those who weren't with us previously, just very, very quickly, uh, a thumbnail sketch of what you found. You came out of your bathroom at your vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right. And you discovered you had printed out 24 pages of kind of a tax document, a summary, including a phone log of people you had contacted and so forth. Yeah. And what did you find?
1: Yeah, and this was just a few days after the big tribute for Fari Ackerman in Hollywood, uh, and two Canadian filmmakers had been there and had and claimed that they had had contact from Fari after visiting his crypt. And I knew Fari for, you know, we're talking about a half a century. I met him when I was a, a boy, and uh, he, he was like a second father to me, and a great inspiration for me to follow the career I did in, in film and television and writing. Uh, so... Uh, The experience I had was was a few days after the uh, tribute, and uh, uh, a document that I knew had been absolutely ordinary. Um, When I put it down on my bed and went into the bathroom, when, when I came out five minutes later, I'm alone in this house in Santa Fe. The doors are locked. There's no question about that. There's no one physically present who could have done this. But then four words are strategically, carefully, blacked out on the document with ink or paint or whatever was used that is still moist at that time. So it had to have happened while I was in the bathroom. And uh, because it was so clearly targeted, uh, it was a profound mystery because, as I said, there was no one physically there that could have done it. I didn't do it. I was shocked by it. I was frightened when it appeared but I was careful, you know, not to touch it. And I, uh, in the first hour we talked, for those who didn't hear, we, we talked about how I I, I determined uh, after some time that it was logically could be interpreted as a message from Forrest J. Ackerman, particularly since it coincided with another message that uh, he gave in an apparition to the fellow that had organized his tribute. But what did I do? I um, Well, the next day we did investigations in the house. We did filming in the house. There's a strange mask from Africa, a tribal mask, that was in the very next room. And there were electromagnetic field anomalies that were measured the next day. We got uh, a very clear electronic voice phenomena on the filming. Again, that was strange. That could have related to Fari's friend, You know, he was an admirer of Edgar Allan Poe. Fari and his famous Monsters promoted every Edgar Allan Poe movie, you know, based on Poe's stories. And uh, here we had an electronic voice phenomena of the word Lenore. Just like that. When There was no one there who could have said that. And, uh, you know, I don't know any Lenore other than the Lenore who's in Poe's The Raven. And his poem, Lenore, so of course, made me think of that. Um, So all these anomalies happened within that 24-hour period. And I protected the document, and it so happened that I have a first cousin who at that time was chairman of the chemistry department of Indianapolis University, Purdue University, uh, I'm sorry, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Complicated college name so Jace, dr jay siegel here's a man of great scientific reputation he's written many many forensic chemistry books uh, he's testified in cases in courts of law that involved chemical evidence and uh he heard my distress and i said jay you know please if there's any way this can logically be explained put my mind at ease uh explain it for me i can't explain it to me it was in my house and did this and i i think i know who the ghost was but i know you deal in ghosts you deal in molecules so i'm i want to bring you this document and i came with my video camera i filmed what happened in the lab and the investigation progressed from jay siegel's work to he called in a former
2: associate. Paul, let me crackle. just stop you there because your, your phone is starting to crackle and I don't know if this is another one of these ongoing if this is Foray Ackerman reaching out to us again and playing some tricks but...
1: Did it just start to crackle?
2: It did, yes.
1: Let me uh, let me pick up the other phone that connects to the same line. I think you can hear me now, right? I can. Okay.
2: Okay, so okay. you were talking about uh, a chemist Jay Siegel and you're you're asking him to get involved in this investigation,
1: right? Well, the investigation, which he thought would be probably a simple thing that he could deal with quickly, because again, he and Dr. Allison of New Jersey were world-class experts. They had done this large project, categorizing, cat- um, creating a, a catalog of all these different inks and dyes and paints and solvents. So one question was, okay, what, what was the ink that this happened with? They both agreed that this was deliberate. It was done intentionally. It was, these words were targeted. And uh, so one question was, what, what, what is the material that it was done with? And the other question is, how, how was it done? And another question is, can they reproduce it in the lab? And this mystery just compounded itself again and again and again for them. And they never got satisfactory answers to how it was done and were unable to reproduce it. And the actual answer about the chemistry and the molecules was very unsatisfying because it only intensified the mystery. Intensified it because they felt most of the molecules they were able to show were the same ink that was originally from the printer, but with silver added and with calcium chromate added that weren't there. So that came from some source added to that ink. But the problem is that because two words were completely blacked out, completely opaque, you needed enough ink off that page to make it opaque. Right. So you had to have a solvent that could take a lesser amount of ink and extend its blackness and make it work to black out two words. Here's the guys who know every solvent there is. They tried for three years. They were never able to reproduce it because you could always see through whatever it was that they added to the ink to try to make, you know, enough there to black it out. So They couldn't solve that mystery. Uh, couldn't solve the mystery of uh, of, of, of how it, it could have been done. There was no one there physically to do it, and they couldn't reproduce it. And to make matters more complicated, John Allison reports in the book the sort of, you might say, poltergeist uh, activity that began for him. It started the very weekend I showed up with the document with the right. camera.
2: I'm going to jump in. We'll take a timeout, and we'll uh, we'll get back to this story. Uh, Co-author John Allison, uh, another uh, chemistry professor, who will tell us about his experiences while investigating the after-death communications between Forrest J. Ackerman, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and my guest, Paul Davids, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Loose lips
0: sink ships, and sometimes corporations got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Let me crib from
2: the uh, the back of um, An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death. Co-author Paul Davids joins us, uh, detailing the uh, after-death or post-mortem communications between Paul Davids and science fiction writer, editor of um, Famous Monsters of Filmland, Forrest J. Ackerman. Uh, What happens when a lifelong skeptic dies and discovers he was wrong about life after death? Forrest J. Ackerman, a luminary in the early history of science fiction and an ardent lifelong atheist, promised that if he were wrong about the non-existence of an afterlife, he would attempt to send a convincing message to a few people he especially respected. Not only did Forrest leave a physical message for co-author Paul Davids that could not be explained by contemporary forensic science, but Forrest produced an extraordinary wealth of four kinds of converging evidence. One, startling physical phenomena, many with clues to his identity. Two, frequent, highly improbable synchronicities. Three, relevant communications via research uh, mediums. Sorry, via research mediums. And four, astonishing measurable effects on technology beyond anything previously documented in the history of afterlife research. Could this, in fact, be the ultimate evidence for life after death? Uh, Keep in mind, two of the co-authors, Gary E. Schwartz and John Allison, uh, both PhDs and uh, university professors. Now, before the break, uh, Paul, you were talking about uh, John Allison, who who you approached and he wrote two chapters in this book and he began to encounter or experience some poltergeist activity once he got on board uh, one of those he had involved he made he was making copies of this ink obliteration which sort of kicked things off for you back in March of 2009 and um well I'll, I'll sort of relay this first one very quickly and then you can get into some of the others but he so he would he would have these photocopies sort of arranged, I guess, on a desk, and he would come uh, and find them sort of scattered, fanned out on his floor. No other person had access to them or would have touched them. Uh, and uh, so that w- that was sort of one thing that obviously alarmed John. Uh, but there were other instances, one including uh, one involving his, his telephone and another involving a Furby doll. I'll let you pick it up from there.
1: Yeah. Um, well, w- w- when I came to New Jersey, I... Set up my video camera, and the first day we did experiments in his lab. Uh, at his house, he explained to me how he was going to proceed with uh, the experimentation. And this involved taking very small pinpricks out of the, uh, the ink part of the, uh, of, of the document and to, to study the chemistry. And while filming him, a clock visible on the wall behind him, an old wind up clock, was ticking away, and it suddenly chimed. And uh, you see, in the film that I did, Life After Death Project, you see John Allison. His face is shocked; like he turns white, uh, and uh, he says, "You know, well that that shouldn't be working." Um, and you had to wind it up to make it work, and he hadn't wound it up in years. Uh, he thought it hadn't worked in years, and he had the key hidden. His wife was out of town; she didn't know where the key was. It was his heirloom, and it had no business working. It had no business chiming, but it's caught there on uh, on the on the video, and it's never chimed again. Uh, it's it's never worked by itself again. So uh, that and the mystery of his scattering pages, and we have reports of pages being scattered in the mansion, where Fari lived, by the tenants who lived there, you know, after his death, uh, like a a singer who would rehearse with her music pages. And she'd uh, uh, stop to make a telephone call in another room, and she'd come back and she'd find the pages uh, scattered across the floor, spread, not just like they fell from the stand, but spread out like Allison did. So this was a recurring uh, phenomena. But with Allison, it... It kept happening his his phone behaved uh, oddly. It would move by itself across the mantelpiece and then fall and hit the floor when uh, it, it wasn't on vibrate, there had been no call. Um, it had a a rubber uh, container on the uh, the iPhone, so you know that friction should have held it on the mantel. And in one evening, uh, at, at, around the time we heard that the Life After Death project was accepted for uh, showing on the Sci-Fi Channel, the phone fell off the mantle twice and then he put it on a coffee table beside him and it worked its way across the coffee table and fell to the floor. Uh, later, he had the same thing happen with his iPad. He had a a Furby, which is a a toy, uh, an One was many, many years old. Batteries hadn't been touched in years. Batteries should have been dead. He was cleaning up. He picked up the Furby. These are little animal toys, you know, that uh, talk to you in their own language, Furbish. And uh, this one uh, talked. The batteries were still working. And he said that in a 24-hour period, it said to him twice, 4-E, 4-E, which, of course, it was as J. Ackerman, he went by the name 4E, and he spelled it with the number 4 followed by an E, and that's what John Allison is hearing from a doll. It's like something out of the movie Chucky. Right. But it's real. It's real. And then John was working, he said, on a, a few paragraphs about a concept that Gary Schwartz had this concept, and John was exploring with it the idea of a could you have a soul phone? If there's life after death, could we ever get to a point where you'd have a telephone where you could communicate with departed spirits? It's all speculation at this point, you know, but the, that Gary Schwartz looks into the theory behind its possibility. So here's John Allison typing up paragraphs about uh, this uh, soul phone, and the Furby says to him while he's doing it, Ring, 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 ring. So uh, creepy stuff in his laboratory, his equipment behaving impossibly strange. A drawer pushing out onto his arm repeated times when there's nothing to push it. And uh, there's a specific procedure for uh, turning off the, the equipment. I think it's a laser desorption device. And the machine violated its own protocol and went through a series of things of with one device turning on and off by itself, which it shouldn't have done. So, again, it became a long list for John. And he, he eventually came to a um, – we had a return to the Acker Mansion. We were invited to come there with scientists, Gary Schwartz. We brought two mediums with us, Suzanne Wilson, Jamie Clark, um, and uh, Rosemary Guiley, who's a paranormal author.
2: Frequent guest on this show.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We spent three nights and four days at the Ackermansion, the remodeled Ackermansion. This is uh, several years after Fari has passed away. And uh, in this experimentation, we actually held a seance there, and there were things that happened in the seance that were caught on film that were very disturbing, because, they, you know, you know <laughs> you'd say that, they, that couldn't happen. We had a skeptical scientist there, um, Dieter Steckles, from the University of Arizona, Tucson, and his wife, Netsine. And Dieter and Netsine are experts in gorillas. Uh, they were in charge of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Organization mm-hmm. in Africa. And Fari loved gorillas and King Kong, and they brought this death mask of a giant gorilla to the seance. And while he was sitting on a a sofa and Suzanne Wilson was bringing through the voices of the spirits she said were present, the couch that he's sitting on, right where he's sitting on, starts to vibrate so strong it's like it's an earthquake. And it's captured on film, and he has his son who's sitting behind him touch it, you know, and confirm he feels the vibration. And believe me, you know, with my suspicious mind although nobody knew we were going to hold the seance in that room until 10 minutes ahead of time. When the whole thing is over, I go to that couch. I reach into every pillow. I look under the couch. I want to know, you know, did somebody leave a sex toy in the the couch? No, absolutely not. And I slept on the couch that night in that room. Um, There was nothing, no way any of us could explain it. So Here's the thing. When we wrote An Atheist in Heaven, I put together a glossary at the end. It's the last chapter, and it lists over 140 odd and inexplicable things that have happened uh, since Fari's death. And most of them relate in some way to Fari. Not all of them. There's a couple of other cases we bring in, too, including something with my mother and my father-in-law. That's in the book, too, but um, – and even Marilyn Monroe, because I made this film, Marilyn Monroe Declassified. It's going to come out this year. Right, right. And some uh, odd things happened while I was making uh, that film, too. So maybe it just follows me at this point. But. Well,
2: when you and I met uh, several weeks ago and had a, a breakfast, uh, you were even bringing me up to date on th- something with an email. And But I, I want to go back to the clock uh, for a moment because you mentioned – uh, that uh, John Allison, uh, yep. you were with him, and uh, his this this clock struck, uh, chimed, and it never you know it never did that before, never did it again. Yep. But there is a um, a famous painting you mention in the book of Forrest Ackerman. It's called the Blue Forey. Yes,
1: yeah, it's on our cover. Of it's the, the painting's on the cover of the Life After Death Project DVD. Right, and we've adapted it so the the, the Forey part of it is on the cover of the Atheist in Heaven. It's a painting by L J Dopp. And Fari, as an old man, has his forefinger up to his lips, and he's—it's as if he's saying "shh." Listen to the spirits of the night. You know, it's <laughs> that kind of an expression.
2: But this—and the painting was made when?
1: Painting was made in two thousand and four. Okay, four years, four before, years he dies. before he died. Four he
2: died. And yeah. and the clock behind him shows what time?
1: Two minutes to midnight.
2: And when did Fari die?
1: Two minutes to midnight. Mm. And then there was the incident of the clock. Uh, buried in Gary Schwartz's chair when I visited him in Tucson and we were discussing the case and uh, the alarm went off at this was actually two minutes to noon
4: or when it went off
1: he hadn't set the alarm he didn't know even though it was buried in his chair at that point but when you look at the clock there's no difference between two minutes to noon and two minutes to midnight it looks the same on a clock it's not a digital clock so that was strange so you keep getting these recurring things you get we've had apports disappearances of objects it shouldn't shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't be disappearing you know they're gone and then 3 days later uh, appear in a really obvious place many instances of that you know the categories and I want to talk about Michael Shermer when we get into our next uh, you know, after the break, because that's really, really important, the skeptic society
2: listen, if you can if you can get Michael Shermer on side, you know you're on something because as i as I mentioned, he is one hard-boiled I don't even you know he's not he's even had a skeptic his own experience
1: now. You yeah, know, the spirits have paid him a visit. He can't explain it. <laughs> he wrote about it in Scientific American. yeah, I reprinted it in uh, uh, Atheist in Heaven. and he, he wrote a, uh, a dedication, uh, he signed to me uh, his book, The Believing Brain, Yes. after he saw the Life After Death Project. He wrote uh, to Paul, in respect of your honest search and integrity, Michael Shermer. I've reproduced this in the book. And the point is, here is the, he's the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, not Skeptical Inquirer, but Skeptic, right. and he's the executive director of the Skeptic Society based in uh, Pasadena. Right, yeah, I've been to his place. And he's he's admitting, he was in my first film, he was the resident skeptic there, he wasn't uh, completely closed-minded, but he just said he thinks that if this stuff is really happening, we call it paranormal today, but tomorrow we'll call it quantum physics. Mm-hmm. You know, It'll be part of your science textbook.
2: Well, I would yeah. say I would go further. I mean, he's been in a number of my, my episodes uh, on, on the TV show, and I tell you, when, when, when he's on that screen, I get more mail saying, why do you have that guy? He's not a skeptic. He's a debunker, and I have to put him in that camp. My yeah. experience is anyway, he is a debunker, yeah. and for you to get Michael Shermer on side, Wow, i got to tell you. (laughs) And
1: now to get him, he's writing in Scientific American, when something happens, it shakes your skepticism to the very core, and we'll have to talk about what that was.
2: All right, Paul David stays with us. An atheist in heaven. We'll also get to some phone calls when we come back.
0: Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarratt from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. All right. Paul David stays with us. This is a special two-hour
2: presentation here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, In fact, I think this is the first time we've ever done this. Uh, Carried a guest over for the full two hours. But it is worth it uh, because the case that he lays out in An Atheist in Heaven, the ultimate evidence for life after death, is so darn compelling. How could we not dedicate the full two hours? Um, Let's grab a phone call here first before we proceed. And uh, let's see. We have Wayne in Tilbury on the line. Where's Tilbury, Wayne?
4: Oh, I'd say about uh, 45 minutes from Windsor.
2: All right. Do you ever hear the Windsor hum? Does it make it up to Tilbury?
1: No, it does not.
2: Okay. All right. We'll leave that for another show. You had a question-comment for Paul Davids.
1: Yes. Yeah, so when you would have something that would uh, that you would notice that would be odd, or or at the time when it would happen, would there be a a physical sensation that you would receive, like a, a static electricity sort of feeling? Sometimes I would say that was the case when we were dealing with that mask from Africa, the day after the ink obliteration happened. I described that uh, earlier in the show. I. I actually uh, got to feel somewhat physically ill. And the electromagnetic field reader that was pointed first at the, the mask, and it just went off the charts with an electromagnetic field from there. This is just right across the wall from where the ink obliteration happened the night before. And then uh, that was then pointed at my head, and there was a an electromagnetic field that... Uh, was just, uh, the thing was blinking. It was beeping. It it shouldn't have happened. I, I was just kind of terrified by the whole thing. Now,
2: Wayne, now, there you there mentioned... Other times. Oh, I sorry. I want to just
1: tell about another time that I had a dinner party at my house. We have a, another mask. It's a Weecho mask. It's flat. It's made of beads, Mexico. And uh, it's attached to a wall in the dining room. And I had uh, dinner guests here. My wife was here. There must have been about eight people. And someone made it comment that I turned into a, a pretty a distasteful uh, joke, uh, you know, off-color uh, joke, just by sort of twisting her words the way Fari Ackerman used to like to do. And everyone saw, at that moment, the Weecho mask off the wall at the moment of the punchline of the joke. And it didn't just fall. It went over a lampshade that's in front of it and landed right at my feet. And everyone was just, again, the timing of it was just perfect for the instant that everyone broke out laughing. And, you know, you, you just can't explain it. it. It took force to push that off the wall. And we played the game of
2: Okay. What happens oh, here we go again, Paul with the uh, the phone. I don't know if Forey is reaching out to us again, but uh the um, can you try the other handset or
1: Oh, uh, did we lose something on the handset? Okay, let's try go back to the
2: other. <laughs> There's Fory Ackerman okay. for this you. The
1: handset works a little bit better. So, which part
2: Okay, no, that? I think we got most of it. The the uh, the this mask not only did it just fall off the wall. I mean, it 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 literally left over a lampshade and landed at your yes. feet.
1: Yes, and all all these people saw it. So, A lot of the things that happened there were specific uh, witnesses to. And uh, I want to get to this point that that it was a variety of types of evidence that built up. And this is why it needed to be this book also, because we had physical phenomena. um, We had instrumental transcommunication, which included the electronic voice phenomena. We had extraordinary results from mediums, and we had many, many really improbable synchronicities where you just say, it just can't happen. The chance is one in a million that that would happen, and then it connects with Fari. So Michael Shermer, who we were talking about, used the expression consilience of evidence and said that for science to progress it takes the consilience of evidence meaning the conformity or agreement of evidence all pointing in the same direction from different fields of study that you get this kind of confirmation pattern and the point is that's what we have that's what we have here
2: right now i don't know which category this fits under uh perhaps the synchronicity but there there's a, an episode that you document in the book involving fate magazine yeah. Uh in which they they talk about the, uh, the the ink obliteration, they talk about the blue f uh, a painting. Yes. Uh tell us about that.
1: Okay. So uh I was asked by the publisher of Fate, Phyllis Galdi, to write an article about the Fari phenomena, because I told her about it at a conference. And I called the article um The Strange Case of Forrest J. Ackerman. And uh, when the article went to press the day i saw the first, the printed copy of it i was so upset and dismayed because i could see right on the first page of my article there was a terrible double typographical error i didn't see how anybody could fail to catch it it completely destroyed the continuity of what i was talking about and I thought made my article seem foolish, and so I was angry at the publisher, but then we talked about it, and what what the what the misprint was I was right in the middle of talking about the artist l. j. dopp, terrific artist by the way look look him up he painted uh, that blue Fari painting that had the clock that predicted four years in advance the time of Fari's death, so I'm just had the words l j and instead of his last name and what I wrote, it suddenly says in Fate magazine, the blackout in two levels of opacity spoke to Joe Amade. And then it repeats it the blackout in two levels of opacity um, yeah, in, in the, the document spoke to Joe Amade. And then it goes on with what I wrote. Well, uh, I never wrote those words there that that way and when it has the in in two levels it uses the numeral two rather than Two you know I I didn't write that it shouldn't have been there and Phyllis Galdi said you know four proofreaders looked at this before it went to press she did David Godwin the um, I think he was sort of an executive director of the magazine and two proofreaders and she said it wasn't there when they sent it in to go to press so then I have this revelation where I'm thinking, you know, maybe this isn't an accident. It's, again, it's the article about the strange case of Forey, and it's sticking it right there in front of your face about the fact that there was this blackout in my document with two levels of blackness of the ink.
2: Forey was underscoring that point, obviously. Yeah. All right, listen, we got to take a time out. We'll get back to uh, this
0: discussion and some phone calls right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio.
2: All right, welcome back. Paul Davids is with us, author, filmmaker, and the book is An Atheist in Heaven, the Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, a compelling evidence for post-mortem communication between uh, the late Forrest J. Ackerman, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and uh, Paul Davids. And uh, let's grab a phone call here. Peter is in Buffalo. Peter, welcome to The Conspiracy Show
4: hi richard uh... you have a great show and you are a really great host i've heard you many times your, on your own show and also on coast to coast uh... paul you know um... i've heard these stories a lot over the years I certainly think you are telling the truth uh, you, you seem to be very impressed by this uh... thing Um but you know um, ever since um... i read a book in nineteen eighty six called spiritual seekers guidebook and actually before that You know, um, how do we know that this is actually Forrest who's communicating to you, or if it's some prankster? I would say that uh, if you start getting information, um, you know, that might be, you know, kind of a tip-off. Because, you know, if it's a prankster, they might start leading you down, um, you know, the wrong path type thing.
2: You mean, you don't mean a a living prankster. You mean sort of a a prankster spirit.
4: Right, right.
2: uh, I mean, before you respond, Paul, I would say, even if that is the case, that certain that still points to the existence of a spirit world.
4: Oh, of course, of course, yes. I've no doubt that there's a spirit world. yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. Paul, you want to weigh in on this? How do we know that it's Forey and not some some lower realm spirit prankster doing this?
1: Well, uh, I think Fari was a prankster himself, <laughs> you know, maybe a higher realm spirit prankster, but it's a fair question, obviously. And I think that the best answer is that uh, so many of these uh, uh, instances of phenomena relate to Fari personally in such a specific way. And when we got to the mediums through Gary Schwartz, people that he had vetted, his details about this, you can see them in the Life After Death project uh, DVD. But you can read uh, much more detail about it in An Atheist in Heaven.
4: But wouldn't that uh, information uh, be uh, readily available to people in the spirit world? No, well,
1: in the spirit world. Well, you know, again, things that are so specific to Fari, to his personality, to expressions he would do, to his particular beliefs, to... I mean, we're talking about from a medium that had no knowledge of who this forest was she was supposed to be communicating with.
4: Oh yeah, Uh,
1: yeah. But you get you get such detail about uh, about about his life, and so many of the contacts do seem to be so intimate. If you heard the first hour, you heard me talking about that uh, uh, Joe Mo's apparition of Fari coming to thank him for the tribute,
4: and the timing
1: of the first message to Fari uh, from Fari uh, to me uh, with the uh, spoke to Joe Mo. Which connected to that so closely, I mean i I guess I have to say the argument the argument would be in the interconnections and in the specific relationship of the information to Fary's own life and how it is an expression of his own personality as we remember it now yeah, if it all of anything. that if all of that is being mimicked by um some other entity um, well, you know I mean how would you? How would you know or, or prove that? All I can say is that from somebody that knew him for half a century, the uh, the contacts have the thrust of his personality behind them. For me and for others that knew him, that's the best we can say.
2: Great question, Peter, and great to hear from you in uh, in Buffalo. Please call again. Um, now we talked about uh, uh... Ackerman's you know views on on life after death, and he was pretty uh, explicit about how he felt. What was What was your view of of the afterlife? You know, before Ackerman died,
1: I didn't have a hard and fast conclusion. I was raised as a secular Jew without any particular religious belief. My parents were not practicing. Um, I did read on reincarnation and the studies of uh, Ian Stevenson. I found them fascinating. I read Paramahansa Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi, and he talked about reincarnation and a lot of these spirit things, and apports, things that can appear and disappear from the spirit world. Uh, but when it hasn't happened to you, it all has a distance to it. Of, it's an intellectual exercise, you know. Do I believe that? Do I accept his sincerity? Do I accept the, the uh, evidence? I must say my closest encounter with it was when I worked for Effley Bailey on the show Lie Detector, and I brought in Dorothy Allison, a psychic detective from New Jersey. There was a book about her, and we put her to a polygraph trying to see whether she was genuine. And one particular case where she had helped police find the uh, body of a murder victim, and the clues that she offered as to where the body was you know, it just seemed there's no way she could have known any of this unless it was given to her uh, from the the murdered, the spirit of the murdered person. You know, it involved uh, a, 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 a bridge for only uh, pedestrians. Uh, it involved uh, uh, factory chimneys near a church steeple. It involved the letters MAR, which turned out to be actual graffiti right near the oil barrel that the body was found in um so when i heard all this firsthand she passed the polygraph of course i I started to have an open mind you know this could be true but never having seen any evidence of it until the farry thing happened for me uh life changed it just has changed uh, completely and you'll see from the book i urge people to to get an atheist in heaven it's at amazon.com you can get it as ebook or as the uh... the a 500-page print book, uh, all the evidence that's there, the scientific reports, all the photos we have that support the case. The whole case is there for those who will delve into it. And my, my greatest hope is that the scientific community will take the bait and dive into it.
2: Uh, and you mentioned the, um, the Marilyn Monroe uh, film that you're working on.
1: Yeah, I've completed now. Uh, it's
2: just going it, to come out. There was an instance, and you've actually included it in the book... Uh, Something very odd happened with with regards to with Marilyn.
1: There were there were uh, about a dozen things, a dozen really odd things that uh, that that happened. Um, We have a little bit of time. I'll I'll mention this. Uh, The film does get into the murder theory. Uh, Officially, she was a probable suicide. Some think perhaps it was accidental overdose. But uh, there is the murder theory, and then um, in recent years there was a confession through the Sam Giancana family, the mobster, his family, that Sam Giancana had ordered this, uh, this hit and had done it on a day when Bobby Kennedy had visited her.
2: Sure, we know Peter Lawford and Kennedy were in yeah, town. He, yeah, and,
1: and the, the mobster Sam Giancana hated Uh, Bob Kennedy, who went after the mob with a vengeance, after the mob had helped, really helped John F. Kennedy get the White House through getting the votes he needed in Chicago to deliver Illinois. So they felt betrayed. And by planning it on a day when Bobby Kennedy had been there and his his fingerprints, they thought, would have been found, it was a very uh, complex thing handled, as a police chief, Tom Redden of Los Angeles has said, handled like an intelligence top-secret operation, the aftermath of it. So one of the things that happened was I was filming director uh, Philippe Mora, who directed the film Communion, by the way, Whitley Strieber's book, Uh, and um, I was interviewing him because he dealt with the FBI documents on this, and I was explaining to him this theory that that there had been an, an intended entrapment of Bobby Kennedy, and this was on film. At the moment I said the word entrapment, his Mac, visible right beyond his shoulder, suddenly booted itself up. It wasn't asleep. It wasn't on and asleep. It booted itself up from zero. No one touched it. That was really odd. I've never seen that happen. He'd never seen it happen. Never happened before or after with that. I've never heard has anybody who listens to this show call in Let Richard know, does anybody have a Mac that was turned off and something, you walk into a room and it (laughs) suddenly boots itself, turns itself on?
2: Well, it's reminiscent of what happened to Ian Johnson after they visited Forey's crypt at Forest Lawn.
1: Yes, that he heard the communication. And I don't know, I think we might have time for this one last story, uh, Richard, that's important because it's so Canadian.
2: Got two and a half minutes,
1: yeah. Okay. Uh, The ring Forey always wore, a gift from Bela Lugosi, uh, the actor who played Dracula. Yeah. Sold for around thirty thousand dollars at the uh, the estate auction after Fari passed away, and um, Michael McDonald, who ra- had wrapped on fari 's crypt, as I explained, he lived in Halifax well, one year later, this ring somehow made its way from Los Angeles to Halifax to the gallery right next door, practically next door within a hundred feet of uh, michael mcdonald 's house. Michael walks. Down the steps outside his house, crosses in front of the gallery, sees the window display, and there is Fari Ackerman's ring in the window right oh, next to his my. house. <laughs> so the world is a mysterious place, you know. And and if the skeptics want us to believe it all happened by accident, oh come on.
2: And come the, on. but and the thing is it's still happening, isn't it? It's yes. it, it,
1: Yes, yes, up to the point that you and I had lunch six weeks ago, and things have happened even uh, since then. There was an email that was received by Jack Kelleher, sent by someone who's deceased now. and the email was originally sent in 2012. He never got it. It arrived in his inbox, you know, now, with a whole lot of names of Fari friends and their email addresses, who <laughs> we thought was being delivered to us to tell them about an atheist in heaven. But uh, there was no date on this email except 2012. It, it's,
2: it's Lost strange. in cyberspace for four years? I yeah. don't think so.
1: Yeah, strange. strange.
2: Wow, Paul, what a delight. Thank you so much uh, for this. Congratulations on An Atheist in Heaven, the Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, uh, available on uh, Amazon in the United States and, uh, and in it,
1: Canada. And in, in uh, Canada. Amazon, Kindle.
2: Wow. Uh, this is a uh, great job. Great job. Thank you, sir. All right, Paul, thank you. Talk again soon. Good night. Paul Davids, an atheist in heaven. All right, my thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, of course, Albert Vinzel, Jonathan Franz, all of you listening I'm back next week with a brand-new program. We, I think we're going to do some open lines right off the top at 11 o'clock, just to, you know, shake things up a little bit. So get your questions and comments ready for next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known what you hear in the dark speak in the light what I say in a whisper proclaim from the rooftops move over Aphrodite I'm coming home good night